Well, this message is message number three in our Love Give series. Uh, we started week one and we asked seven questions about an ancient practice that God gave long ago to train our hearts toward generosity and we looked, delved deeper into it. Uh, hopefully to realize that it's not some legalistic requirement or a do-good performance mechanism that God gives, but it's for our heart to train us to be imitators of Him. In the Bible, there's some 200 and something verses about believe. I th- nod your head if you think believe is important or you, you, know, c- you come to church today and, and think, well, I ought to believe. I know God wants me to believe. There are 200 and something verses about believe. Uh, there's 300 and something verses about pray. You guys think you should pray. You kind of know that's in the book. You know, that's an invitation to pray. 300 and something verses on pray. There's 900 and something verses on love. We all agree, right? Love is important. It's truly what the world needs now more than ever, I would say with election day on Tuesday we need some love right but look 900 something verses on love what about the word give 2,000 plus verses on the word give our God I say to you because of his love it flows from that but because of our love our God is a generous God and that's exactly what we're looking at in this series love gives we have said that it's more than a few weeks of sermons it's an initiative and it's a vision for the future. Last week, we looked at the very idea that oftentimes we can get involved in an organization and then we drift. We don't really know the purpose or what it's about for churches. It's singing and sermons and routine, right? And it falls flat and dull and people either grow bored or they get bitter. And we are saying, knowing that Fondren Church is an experiment, knowing that every move that we make, we pray that God blesses that he's in it as we seek him. But this is an experiment for the future. And we are saying, what kind of church can we be? We want to be clear. We want to live with a white hot purpose. We don't want to drift away from this. But flowing from Galatians chapter 5 and verse 6, we are saying that we want to be a church where the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. That this could be a place and a people where you find faith, where you walk in faith, where your faith grows and it's activated and it's expressed in love, in God's love, imitating Him. And so this morning, I want week uh, three, this sermon, to be about this, about life. I'm holding up the board game life. I've left the wrapper on it because I'm going to take it to Barnes & Noble later today and trade it back in unless one of you wants to buy it. But this is the game of life. And let me ask you, is life a game? You know, I think part of me wants to answer yes, because we we ought to play it. There ought to be joy to it, right? But then some of you are thinking, well, you know, life is more than a game. There's more gravity to it. You know, you're, you're the type of people who give us a headache, right? You just take everything so seriously. But here's life, and I ask you, how are you living it? How are you playing the game of life? Each of us have one. Each of us have only one. How's it lived? Is it a life of consuming and acquiring? Is it a life of hoarding and storing? Or is it a life devoted to something else, something bigger? Something more noble and expansive. What are the rules? How are you playing this game of life? How are you? What about the life of our church? What kind of life is God calling us into in the future? What would it look like to be a people who say the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love? What would that look like in the life of our church? There's somebody, I really celebrate his life. He lives his life uh, on another part of the world. My brother, would you come up if you would? And uh, we're going to give this friend of mine a hot microphone here in a second. And I've known him for four years. Is that right? Yeah, four years. And our lives are different. They're lived in in different continents, different hemispheres. 
uh, different language, different culture, so many different things, but yet we share Christ. We share the Christ life uh, together. We've known each other for four years. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Th- tell tell uh, Fondren Church your name and where you're from. My name is Panya Yen. Good morning, church. I'm from uh, Cambodia. Yeah. Wait, I'm sorry. When he says good morning, you will say... Yeah, there you go. Southern hospitality at its finest. There, I put him to sleep most Sundays, so if you can bring some energy, that'd be good. Sure. Yeah. So he lives in Phnom Penh, Cambodia, and he is one of our partners. You hear us talk about when we talk about the tithe challenge that we issue to families, to individuals. We as a church take the tithe and we double it. Ever since our inception, our beginning, we've been given 20% away to strategic dedicated deserving ministry partners here locally and globally and this is one of our favorites and so Panya is one of these guys that we just admire uh, tell them who your uh, favorite most handsome funny pastor is that's Robert yeah that's it okay right I can say nobody else on here yeah. there there there's cue cards right here um, I'm gonna ask you several questions and then we'll uh you can sit down like the rest of them and um, listen to this message. But there's a, there's a life that we have. Panye lives a life. You guys have a life. Only one. How are you living it? How are you investing it? And the conventional method to life is, is to do just that. Live according to conventional wisdom. Jesus told a story. He told a parable. He was very good at that. And he said that the ground yielded an abundant, pro, uh, an abundant harvest to this certain rich man. And this certain rich man in Luke 12, Jesus tells us that he thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to do with all the stuff? How am I going to store it? Where will I put it? And he has this thought, I will tear down my barns, I will build bigger barns, and I will store my stuff. And there, there will be enough, there will be enough barn, enough storage for all the surplus grain. And you know, that philosophy of life is just that. Live your life to get what you can to be a consumer, to take in, to receive. And in this economy of life, conventional wisdom says that math, or that money is math. It's all about having or losing. And so, Panya, do you understand American money? Yes. Yeah. This is, uh, these are uh, dollar bills here from a game called Monopoly. Do you have Monopoly in? Yes. You do, okay. Did that question sort of insult you? No. No, okay. So here are, here's a stack of Monopoly $1 bills, there are 10 of them. Yes. If I give you one... How much money do you have? One dollars. How much money then do I have? Nine. So am I richer or poorer for giving you that? You have less. I have less. Ooh, I see what you're doing there. Kind of tricky. You don't want to be wrong, <laughs> but you don't want to steal my thunder in the sermon, right? Here's a, honey, here's ten dollars. It's ten, ten dollar bills. How much is that that I'm holding? A hundred. hundred dollars. Very good. So if I give you ten dollars, you have? Ten dollars. And I have? Ninety. Ninety. So am I richer or poorer? You less, you got less. Okay, I have less. All right. I'm holding a stack of one hundred dollar bills. Ten of them. How much is that? Thousands. Whoo! Now it's getting stakes are big, bro. I'm getting rich. You're getting rich now. You have <laughs> you have a hundred dollars, and I have nine hundred. Nine hundred. This guy's a big joker, and a few summers ago, I was with him, and we went to, we had been eating his food all week. I mean, the, the spicy, spicy food. Look at him. He's laughing now. Good food. And good we, food. Yeah, good food. And man, we were just trying to stomach it, if you will. And then one night, one of the last nights, our team was there. We went to Mike's Hamburger Place, an American-style burger place in Phnom Penh, a city of 2.3 uh, 2. 2. 3 million people. Yes. And uh, it was like an in-and-out burger 
uh, there. And so we just, we just had the best time eating American food, praise God, and laughing and telling jokes. So this guy loves jokes. So think about our money, think about our lives, think about investing. There's, a, there's a, an old story about two guys um, like you and I. Their names were Frank and Bob, and they were, on a, a, they were on a plane. And tragically, the plane crashed. But remarkably, they survived, and they were on a deserted island. And Bob said to Frank, we're going to die. We're not going to make it. And Frank said, oh, no, we're going to make it. I make $250,000 a week. Bob went to parts of the island. He went to search to see what the prospects were. And he came back to his friend Frank and said, we don't have food, we don't have water, we're going to die. And Bob and Frank said, rather, he said, look, I make $250,000 a week, we are not going to die. And Bob was frustrated at this point. Frank clarified, he said, look, I make $250,000 a week and I tithe, my pastor will find me. (laughs) As we talk about giving... We have said in week one, and we're kind of continuing it, that this is a practice. It's a habit that God gave his people. He gave them this practice to train their hearts to generosity, to give 10%, not leftovers, but 10% first fruit off the top, and to be able to trust him. We have said that money is never about money. Money is about trust. And how we spend and invest tells us if we trust, tells us to the extent of where we trust. And so we've given a challenge. I want to do this as your pastor to challenge you to do this um, as early as you can in life because it's harder when you start making more money, right? It's harder to give away more. But that's what God calls us to do, to live a life of investment. So you guys have invested, uh, we have invested in you as you invest in people over there. What would, you, what would you want to say to everyone that does invest financially here or that's praying about investing financially? Thank you so much, Pastor Robert. Uh, you know, it's such a privilege to come back every year. There's ways to keep in touch from Cambodia to here, but it's always an honor to speak face-to-face to Fondren's. Uh, Fondren is one of our most uh, consistent partners, um, you know, and for the hapless community through your financial support every month. And, uh, you know, I just, I just want to say thank you so much because what you've been sowing to this, to this house is really make a big effect, uh, at the other side of uh, the globe. This year, we're able to rescue 32 kids who've been trafficked. And this is not our fruit. This is your fruit. We're able to send 16 of them into a safe house. And we couldn't do this without you. And uh, in a minute, I'm going to read the scripture, which is Pastor Robert going to ask me to do. But, uh, you know, as you're in the series of love gifts, and uh, it, it just so encouraged my heart to come here and then see how you guys are doing. And especially the seed, this is, I want to tell you, this is a good soil. And when we want to plant the seed, we want to find a good soil. And, and this is a good soil because uh, last year I came, I was, a, I was a social worker. This year I came as a father of seven weeks old baby. And, uh, and one of the night, he couldn't go to sleep. You know, newborn wake up all the times. When I look at him, he's opened his big eye over me. And then I could tell that how helpless he is. And he needs somebody to stand for them. He needs somebody to feed them. He needs somebody to be there and hold them. And I start realize that, you know, our kids, there's nobody stand out there for them. And and this is what a good father do. And Fondren, whatever you do it out here, you are the father of those children out there. That's what I want to say. You know, some of you make a trip over there. You are the father of those children. Thank you for always 
be there for us from here and then allow us to bring healing because your your support every month we able to bring healing over them we able to bring restoration we able to bring freedom for them so again thank you so much Trondren Church uh, for doing that so stay there so this life there's a uh, there's a little more to it in fact there's a uh, there's conventional wisdom that says live and consume and hoard and store but then there's another way it's unconventional wisdom and it says that this game of life ought to be lived with some risk that we need to be willing to move away from safety to move away from convention to move away from what's happening around us to think differently to to think about how god has blessed us and to look at that in a very very different way to risk more than we risk to move away from the lazy boy and lounging into a life of uh, increasing our level of generosity and what we seek to do amazing growth in Cambodia. Uh, some of it is to the extent that we have been able uh, to give and to support them. Pania held up the cover of Christianity Today last year that talked about the church growing in Cambodia and the human trafficking industry beginning to crumble. And it's because of churches like Fondren and people who invest here that can make that happen there. So we're going to compare, before you take your seat, we're going to compare conventional wisdom, Luke 12, bigger barns, storing my stuff with Luke chapter 6 and what Jesus said. And so would you read uh, this verse, Luke 6.38, it'll be on the screen. Would you read it in uh, your language and then in ours? Thank you. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Amen. Would you guys give Pani a big hand? Appreciate him. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bless you. So what my brother read there in his language and ours from Luke 6.38 is not, listen, it's not a command. It seems like it. It's not a command, but here Jesus is making an observation about how the universe works, about how life in this world works really operates in fact he's making an observation and he's making a claim and it's a claim that conventional wisdom is wrong and so conventional wisdom says that money is math that it's about having or losing but what our savior teaches us unconventionally is that money is not about math having and losing it's about sowing and reaping one of the early followers of jesus paul would put it this way in second corinthians chapter 9 it says this the point is this whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully hold that there for a second before we go some of us so many of us it's stubborn in us and it's corrosive we think we're the exception to this rule we think that we can lie and get away with it. We think that we can hoard and still be happy. We think that we can not discipline our kids and they'll turn out okay. Time and time again, we violate this in our lives and we do so to our detriment to think that we do not reap what we sow. Men and women, church, it is true. What scripture says 
it is true. And we mock God and we deceive ourselves if we think that we can do otherwise. We reap what we sow. We do. Every life does. Next up. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Again, conventional wisdom, having and losing. I gave Panier some money. I asked him, am I richer or poorer? What did he say? He was crafty. He said, you have less. But could it be true that I'm richer? He wouldn't go there, right? He didn't want to be wrong. He didn't want me to shame him in front of all you Americans, right? But he said, you have less, but could it be true? Could the risk that I'm taking, could it be true that in having less, in fact, I have more? The very first startup, a quick history lesson, the very first startup. Some of you are entrepreneurs. Some of you have a vision for the future, right? You're going to want venture capitalists. You're going to hope that you'll go rich with it. The very first startup was the greatest, I call the greatest discoverer inventor in the history of the world. And we don't even know his or her name. Let's assume that it was a man. And let's say this about this first ever startup, that he took some seed and grain and he, and he threw it into the ground. Now remember, our ancestors led nomadic lives. The first humans were hunters and gatherers. They were on a perpetual scavenger hunt. And because of that, they had to go. They, they, could, they weren't able to, to build cultures and create communities and establish institutions because they were going from place to place, from day to day, until the day this discoverer, this innovator with this amazing startup threw seed into the ground. And because it was a startup, he needed investors. He said, hey, you guys, you gals, come here and look at this. It seems silly. It sounds stupid. But instead of eating your grain and sand or saving it for another day, you throw it down. You put it in the ground and then you're patient. And amazingly, some power activates what you put away. You took a risk. It didn't seem to be right. It wasn't conventional. In fact, it went against the grain. But you threw that seed or that grain into the ground, a power was activated. And it's as if something in the sky spoke to something in the ground and said, wake up, come alive, grow. Could it be true? This very idea is for every Jesus follower to think about, to ponder deeply, to see how it can be activated in every life, single, married, young, or old, to see how this this principle of generosity, of seeing life with abundance and not scarcity, of realizing that in the game of life, we have to take risk. And in so doing, something happens that with less, God can multiply. When I was a young boy, I was taught that 90% with God's blessing is better than 100% without His blessing. And do you know, despite my sin and my brokenness, I'm as flawed as anybody in the room. I've kept that. I've begun to practice that, and I've kept that. And as a church family, as I said, we take that and we double that. And who knows what God can do in the future. But listen, give and it will be given to you. Do you believe that? Do you come today with a natural bent toward believing that, or do you resist that? I mean, am I the slick, polished guy that's going to try to get something from you? Is this a get-rich scam? It's, it's not, by the way. But look, do you believe that? Do you believe that if you give, it will be given to you? That's an observation about how the universe works. 
That's a claim that conventional wisdom is not true. So if it's a claim, it ought to be tested. Uh, Do you believe that? I believe that every claim that is made ought to be tested. You're at your worst and your weakest when you're watching TV late at night into the wee hours and you watch those infomercials, right? They make all those promises and you promise yourself that you're going to call that number on the screen. You're going to point or click, call or click, and you're going to order that product for three easy payments and it's going to turn your life around. They made this bold claim about what it can do for you. That claim ought to be tested. It ought to, have, it ought to be verified with empirical data. So this claim that Jesus makes and his followers cling to and say that it's true, is it? Is it true? Can it be verified? Turns out, it has been verified. There's a writer, um, highly venerated writer named Christian Smith. He's a Notre Dame professor, very well respected across the spectrum. He wrote a book. It's considered the benchmark, benchmark book on money giving generosity resources. It's called The Paradox of Generosity. And to get to this great work, he surveyed thousands of people. He interviewed scores of folks and he used the most reputable tools of social science research in our day. And it is a definitive study. Christian Smith. Notre Dame University, The Paradox of Generosity. Listen to what he says. Generosity is paradoxical. Those who give receive back. By spending ourselves for another's well-being, we enhance our own. This is not only a philosophical or religious teaching. It is a sociological fact. It's true. And the opposite is true. To state it in the negative, if you hold on to what is yours you lose. If you think that the math of 100 for you is better than 90 for you, you're wrong. If you think that your resources are yours, if you think that you don't have enough, that you can't trust Him, and that His Word applies to other people, you're missing it. And this book, I would encourage you, anybody, anybody that wants to dig deeper in this regard on generosity, it is full, it is latent, it is rich with this research that talks about just from the human body to uh, our relationships with other people and interactions to all the spectrum is included in all the benefits and then all the way that the way that living generously causes your life to flourish and the way that living stingy or in greed causes your life to diminish. The paradox of generosity. It's important to note that the teachings of Jesus really stand out here. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, um, it tells us that you and I, that our lives and how we serve other people should stand out when we're tempted to hide. But in Matthew chapter 6, he tells us that there's a part of our lives that we should hide when we're tempted to stand out. Isn't this profound? And in and of itself, it's paradoxical. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, Jesus says that you have been given a gift. You've had this talent. Do you know what your talent is? Look for everyone. For everyone, discover the gift that God has given you. Discover it and develop it and deploy it for the good of humanity. Jesus teaches us, don't hide it under a bushel. I don't know who needs to hear that this morning. Some of you are shrinking back in fear and not using that gift that God has given you. Can I tell you? Be of courage. Be of courage and go forth. 
Not with selfish, bitter ambition, not with vain pursuit. But it says in Matthew 5, 16, don't hide it under a bushel. In fact, do your good works before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And can I just say, you know when you're doing something for self-glory, don't you? It, 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 you're rewarded in the moment. You get a compliment. You get a slap on the back. Someone praises you. You get written up or whatever, a reward or recognition. But Jesus says, if that's what you're doing it for, then you have your reward. And that's it. Jesus is saying when you, that you ought to stand out when you're tempted to hide, but also you are to hide when you're tempted to stand out. And Matthew 6, 1 and 3 is about this very act of giving. You see, it's not just the doing of the act. It's not just the giving of the money. It's the heart motivation behind it. And Jesus says that we ought to have practices that we don't trumpet before men, that the watching world doesn't see, but He does. It's the quiet work of women and men who make up the church. And no matter what you have coming in a week, if you're like a really rich Frank or you're just like the rest of us or someone on the lower rung, to give, to do it in a way that's not practiced before men, but to make it happen. It's the engine that makes the local church go. It's what brings greater gospel advancement in our world today. God desires us to give not reluctantly or grudgingly, not to do it by show, but to do it cheerfully. The word there in 2 Corinthians is hilarious. To laugh when we give an offering, to know that we're giving something away, we're throwing something in the ground, but something in the sky is saying to that something in the ground, come alive, wake up, and grow. And that's exactly what Jesus promises us. And studies in social science Bear that reality out. This claim that Jesus made, resist it if you will. Shun it. Don't practice it if that's what you want to do. But I'm telling you, it is true. Empirically verified generosity leads to a greater life, a life of happiness and more flourishing. Let us, in the balance of our time, consider the most ungenerous person, I believe, in all the Bible. A man named Pharaoh. Exodus 1.8 tells us this about this Scrooge. Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Leave that passage up, Exodus 1.8. Think about the context. Think about the history of what happened. Here's Joseph and Israel. And think about Joseph and Israel and what they meant to Pharaoh and Egypt. What did they mean to them economically? And here it says that this new king, <clears throat> to him Joseph meant nothing. What a callous disregard for other people, to look with scorn for those who aren't you, who don't have what you have. And here we see this ungenerous, hardened heart of this king. Next, <clears throat> look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. It's like election is on Tuesday, and they're scared. Oh, what's going to happen? They're going to outnumber. I hope they don't outnumber us because they're taking over the country and sending us down the pipe, right? Oh, my goodness. And let me just say this. This is what happens when money is your God. When you're the person in power, your greatest fear is for that to be taken away. And it leads, to, it leads to insecurity, anxiety, and misery in untold fashion. And here, Pharaoh, this king, the one who should be appreciative of Joseph 
and the Israelites. He's leading his Egyptian people, and he's got this disregard for them. Look at what it says in Exodus chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron, they were a tandem. They went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go. Shannon, they make songs of this. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. God desires celebration. God desires freedom. God desires that no people are enslaved or oppressed ever. And he wants to move the narrative forward. And he says this, this command through his guys, Moses and Aaron. But look how... Pharaoh deals with it. The king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. Blame shifting, by the way. Fault finding and blame shifting. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Wow. Christian Smith, in the paradox of generosity, talks about this reality called this. I bet it's an expression you've had used before. Maladaptive self-absorption. It is for the ungenerous. It, is, it reflects the ungenerous heart. Because see, generosity reduces maladaptive self-absorption. And this reality, I would say Pharaoh is the poster boy for it. Because it's, it's when you are focused on your stuff. When you're enamored with your glory and the advancement of your agenda. It is when you are threatened by anything else on the outside that might take away what you have. You ruminate about your stuff. You are fascinated by your success. And you taunt it and showcase it. And conversely, it leads to a disregard for other people. Can you imagine? I mean, imagine. We're so advanced today. This would never happen in America or anywhere around the world. But the rich and powerful look with disdain at other people. Can you imagine that? Could you imagine that there's a, a whole system, maybe a, a type of person in our world that is uh, sitting in the lazy boy that's sleeping on the California King Sealy Posturepedic mattress in the palace and they have all of this and they, in the midst of all that, look at the slaves breaking their back and that person, those people say, you are lazy. Could you imagine that? I'm so glad the human heart is advanced to be what it is in our day. So there's this call, call away from ourselves to other people. Do you want to be the hard-hearted person? Do you want to be the person that looks with disdain at other people? Susan Fisk is a Princeton researcher and professor, and she delivered some amazing studies, very fascinating, about how we look at other people. How do you look at other people? Do you have love for everybody or do you place people in categories? Do you label them? She says that we look at everybody with a couple of different uh, perspectives. She calls them warmth and competence. And she makes it real. She says, imagine you're walking in a dark alley and uh, as your pastor, I don't know why you're walking in a dark alley. Okay, get out of there. But let's say you're walking in a dark alley and you see a stranger. You're going to judge them. Okay, you're going to put them in a category based on warmth and, and competence, warmth and competence. So warmth is, do they intend good or harm to you? 
So you make that judgment, right? Do they intend good or harm to me? And competence is, are they able to carry out what they intend? If they intend harm, are they going to do that? If they intend good, will they be able to do that? And so she says, life, we put people into four different quadrants based on high, low warmth and high, low competence. And so people that have high warmth, they intend good and high competence, we look at them with admiration. We admire them. They get our R-E-S-P-E-C-T. They are high in warmth and high in competence. They intend good and they do good. They get our admiration. There are folks who they um, don't intend our good and they're competent. So they're low in warmth and high in competence. I think a good example would be Nick Saban in Alabama football. Do they intend do they, when they show up in town, do they intend for your good? They seek your good or to harm you, right? They seek to harm you and they have high competence to be able to do that. Uh, there's another group of people, uh, their warmth is high, but their competence is low. They don't want to hurt you, uh, Mississippi State, next weekend in Tuscaloosa. Uh, but if they did want to hurt you, they're low in competence, they wouldn't be able to harm you, right? So, like, so, we, so we look on people who have low warmth, high, high competence, we look on them with a bit of envy. But people who have high warmth, low competence, we look on them with pity. Then there's a fourth quadrant. There's no high in it. It's just low warmth, how we perceive them to be low in warmth and low competence. And through Princeton's study, through neuroscience and specifically neuroimaging and specifically brain mapping, they looked at people and it was a study to reveal whether we're generous or not, which flows on how we see the world. Remember we looked at Matthew 6 last week where Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body, like perspective is everything. I have a pastor friend who says, man, if people, if people buy in, they pitch in. The problem with pitching in, if, you're, if you lead an organization and volunteerism isn't high, people aren't giving and serving and all that, the people probably haven't bought in. Perspective is really, really important. And there's this perspective for the homeless people. And this neuroimaging at Princeton University revealed the following, that people look at extreme poverty. This is remarkable. People look at extreme poverty, the, the parts of the brain that light up or don't light up. It's the same thing as looking at objects or things. Now, do you follow? So people with low warmth, people we perceive as low warmth, the homeless person, the person who can't do anything for us or themselves, we view them, regard them with high contempt. Can you imagine? They're just like things or objects, without feelings and fears, without hopes and hurts like us. And think about what Jesus said. When you've done it to the least of these, low competence people who mean you no harm, when you do it to the least of these, you have done it to me. So when you look at this world, remember I said in week one of Love Gives that to be a follower of Jesus is to live a life of risk. It's to live a life of adventure. And to follow Jesus is to be a, have an awareness, possess an awareness of the world today. And so when we look at extreme poverty, when we look at kids trapped in sex trafficking in other parts of the world and things in our own backyard, what part of our brain lights up? Or do we objectify and lessen these very people created in the image of God? Shane Claiborne says, you cannot worship a homeless man on Sunday and disregard one on Monday. And are we as a people shaping ourselves 
to truly follow Jesus? Or are we conforming to the dominant pattern of our culture? Consuming over and over again and again. When you give, you get something in return. When you give, it will be given to you. I have a friend. He's very competitive. Y'all know anybody like that? Like he wants to, like everything's a competition. Even when you're not competing, he's competing. And he like wants to win everything. I love him to death. But he gives blood. He gives blood at work. And every year he wins the most blood given at his office. Now, what does that do for you? Some of you are squeaming, right? So some of your doctors are like, go ahead, preach on. But like, what does that do for you? Like winning the competition of blood giving. My, my first thought, my first inclination is, well, you know, don't be careful. All right. Maybe, you know, like Christmas and Easter or once, once or twice a year, once a decade, once a lifetime. That'd be good. Hey, I gave blood, you know, put it right up there. We'll donate an organ when you die. Right. I gave blood. But this guy like wins it every year. But listen to me. When you give blood, you actually force your body to regenerate new blood cells. And oxygen is activated to that and blood transport. And by the way, before doctors and scientists showed up on the scene, Leviticus, Leviticus said long ago that the life of the body is in the blood. And now we know that. But blood transport is enhanced when we give blood because of regeneration, the recuperation of oxygen cells within. Isn't that weird? Could it be that when you give, you get in return? Could it be true? Give, and it will be given to you. As if something in the sky is saying, throw it down, risk it, don't play it safe, invest your life in something bigger than you. Think about as we close, think about Pharaoh. Think about what I consider to be the most ungenerous heart in all the Bible. He could have moved away from being Israel's oppressor. He could have said, hey, Moses and, Fa Moses and Aaron, you're good young leaders. Tell me, well, Moses wasn't young, but you're good leaders. Tell me, tell me about your people. Tell me about the working conditions. Is turnover high and morale is low? Do they have enough to eat? Do they have opportunities for career advancement? Tell me about these people because they're working hard. He could have been, he could have said, I'm your benefactor. I'm your champion. I'm not your oppressor. I'm your liberator. Pharaoh could have been Abraham Lincoln or Nelson Mandela to this nation of Israel so long ago, but he chose to live for himself. And his own clinging to his stuff. Listen, he didn't give anything away, do you? He wasn't going to trust in the sovereignty of God that less is more. In fact, he questioned the motive of those working and Moses and Aaron. That's what you do, right? I, like some I, preachers incur the wrath sometimes of the people, right? Instead of listening uh, openly to what God might be want to stir up in your life about generosity, you pass judgment on to me thinking it's something I want to get from you. Generosity is something that we want from you so that your life will flourish. Sure, we gain to benefit. But we want your life to be a life of blessing. Now, Pharaoh built a pyramid. That's what ancient Egyptians did. Anybody ever visited the ancient pyramids over in Egypt? You ever been there? You, you know, you studied, you know, what do they put in the ancient pyramids? A person's stuff, I don't, so people can go, wow, when they die. 
How's conventional wisdom working for us there, huh? And then they put the dead carcass in. So think about it for a second. Is your life pointed in that direction where you're building a monument for your dead caucus, dead carcass? Caucus voting season. Carcass. Or are you building something else? Something where you invest your life that's not about your life. Jesus said this in John 12, 24. This is really weird, y'all. Could it be true? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Like that, that's life. Like that's the rule of life. In love, giving it away, and running that risk. Even though it doesn't seem true, you die to yourself, you will live. You give of yourself. Your time, yes, your money, don't go weak. Money too, resources. Money and time and all of you, the talents that God's given, all of it, you give it to Him. You give it away. And we're doing it to an extent where it hurts a little bit to give. To increase not our standard of living, but our standard of giving. God says a lot about, do we trust Him? And will we yield our hearts to Him? And for some of you, you've had the training, you've been on the training wheels of tithing for a long time. You're doing well, and you know the blessed life because of it. But God is calling you to more sacrificial giving and to higher levels, but back to Jesus. What a weird world God has made. That by putting something in the ground, it grows. And some of you are dialed in, Jesus. Life is in the blood. Jesus shed his blood. Jesus put his body all the way in the ground. It was as if someone in the sky would say to someone in the ground, wake up, come alive, and grow. And I would say to you that our lives, in accordance with his, aligned with his, will grow as well. Would you stand? Father, thank you. Orient us to you. Help us to be a place that says that the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. Love saying, what can we do for you? And Lord, move us away from ourselves towards something bigger. We have this chance. We have a chance, this opportunity as a people to see you take us to places we never dreamt of before. Not to be a large church, but to be a loving church. Not to be huge, but to be healthy, to be connected to the source of life and in turn give it to others. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You come today. This altar is open. We are here. If we can pray for you, have the courage.